0: I've been listening to Hank Williams' greatest hits for years. And I listened to them once last night. Welcome to Spin It. And welcome back to Spin It, the record-ranking podcast for people who'd rather be listening to music. I'm James. With me, as always, is Connor. Connor, say hello to the people. Howdy, (laughs) y'all. Howdy. Yeah, howdy is probably more appropriate this week because we're talking about the Hail Billy Shakespeare himself, Mr. Hank Williams, Sr
1: what a nickname (laughs) isn't it though it's quite a standard that's set instantly just off of the nickname
0: yeah that's a high bar that's a high bar instead of Macbeth, he wrote like marybeth or something
1: and also it's a good thing you clarified that yeah it's hank williams senior because there's like a million hank williams juniors in the thirds and the fourths all out there who have taken the name hank williams
0: i think the biggest ones are hank williams senior and hank williams jr but definitely hank williams the third has been up to some shenanigans and some of the others too unlike Casey. Musgraves, who was kind of pop country. Hank ain't none of that. No, he's all country through and through, you know? He's that honky tonk country. Yeah, honky-tonk country, country country-western, really classic stuff. And actually, there are some similarities, though. You know, he's also a bit of a yodeler. Yes, I I read that. (laughs) Well, you read it and you heard it, I hope. We're talking about some yodel songs today. I tuned that out. (laughs) And we should probably clarify too, we're doing something a little differently today. Yeah. We're not talking about any of Hank Williams' proper albums, because I figured if we're gonna do an episode on Hank, we didn't want to miss all of the great singles that he put out, you know? He was really around kind of before for the album era, which most people kind of think started in the early 60s. And his career mostly ran from 1937 up until his untimely death in 1953. At 29 years old, by the way, it's tragic. Died young. Yeah, he did. But in light of that, we're going to do a bit of a greatest hits compilation, which we don't usually do because they're tough to rank and they're not really a fair reflection of the artist because it's the greatest hits. You know, you get all of the good and not as much of the bad sometimes. But that's the difference for this episode.
1: And it's like it's like you said, his career was focused on putting out radio singles and things he could do in live shows, so he didn't really have any album albums really put out, I mean, until after his death, right? Then they were all greatest hits albums.
0: Well, he did release two full-length LPs in his lifetime, one in 1951 and another in 1952, but he put out more than 40 songs just as singles, and that's where a lot of his most enduring songs have come from. Yeah, And you're right, after his death, the record label did put out I mean, a ton of compilation albums and greatest hits. By 1954, they'd released five new records, and they would continue with really pretty regular revamps well into the 60s. He died in like 52, didn't he? He died in 1953, yeah. And by 1954, they released five records.
1: That was a lonesome whistle right there. What? Oh, did the whistle not come through? I whistled.
0: (laughs) No, I didn't hear the whistle. I did hear that. That was a lonesome whistle. It was so lonesome that nobody else even heard it. (laughs) But let's talk about the man, Hank Williams.
1: Did you know his name's not really Hank? Not really Hank.
0: Well, what's his name? His
1: real name is Hiram Williams.
0: Hiram Williams. Hank is a nickname. I can understand why. Hiram is a, is a mouthful. I
1: should have used that as a factor spin, I guess. I figured that was something
0: you would know. I probably should have known that. I just got so caught up in everything else surrounding the man. It's literally on the Wikipedia page. It says Hiram Hank Williams. Well, when young Hiram was but 16 years old, he really kind of got his start when he hosted and performed on a 15-minute radio show in his hometown of Montgomery, Alabama.
1: What is it with country stars and getting started
0: as like kids? I don't know. I guess that's just the way to do it.
1: Casey Musgrave was performing at the Olympics as like a 12-year-old or something.
0: Crazy. It is. But he would play and his songs kind of got big through that radio program program and when he signed to his first record label he started to tour and do shows so he put together the drifting cowboys backup band shortly afterwards and in the beginning they would undergo a lot of lineup changes sometimes as frequently as every single show he would change his backup band
1: well and a good chunk of the originals got drafted into the war
0: yeah so he had to change up his lineup that's definitely a big historical moment that's going on while hank williams is kind of in his early days but eventually that trend of replacing members did slow down down, and the group really solidified with Hank Williams' debut on the Grand Ole Opry in 1949. Yeah, Grand Ole Opry, man. It's a historic venue. Yeah, it is, for sure. And for those of you who aren't maybe as familiar with country music history or the Grand Ole Opry, it's pretty much... How dare you? The show of shows for <laughs> country music. No, not how dare you. They're allowed to not know. It's a big deal. The Opry started in 1925 as a barn dance show where they would just play square dancing and music and, and dance around for an hour. I can square dance. Can you? Can you? You mean you could dance like a square? I get snubbed at the square dance awards every year. Okay. You probably haven't earned any Square Dance Awards anyway. I don't think it's a snub if you don't earn it. The Opry has only missed one single regular Saturday Night Broadcast since 1925, and that was in the wake of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination in 1968. But other than that, they've pretty much been going for nearly 100 years. Is
1: this an episode on the Grand Old Opry or on Hank Williams?
0: No, okay, no, that's a cool Opry tangent. Opry tangent, that's a fun set of words to say. (laughs) Yeah, it is, I guess. It it feels like a
1: code. You know, it's like, you you know, like people are like, whiskey broth. or, you know, Operation
0: Opry tangent.
1: Yeah. Operation Opry tangent. That's what we should call uh, when when we're out there trying to hunt down these missing carrots and and all our other spinet mysteries. uh, We call it Operation Opry tangent.
0: I like it. I like it. I'm just glad Hank finally made it onto the Opry because he got rejected when he applied in 1946. I read that. So it took him three more years to make it all the way to the top.
1: Also, we're back on the tangent.
0: No, that's the end of the tangent. I'm just concluding it.
1: This concludes the Opry tangent.
0: This is Spin Opry Tangent with Spin It. Hank suffered from a lot of chronic back problems, and he dealt with some alcoholism even before he was famous. But then, you know, the stress of touring and becoming popular really started to wear on him, and his marriage started to struggle as he was away from home, so his alcohol consumption started to increase. And at the same time, around 1951, he really amplified his back injury during a hunting trip, so he had to start on some paid medication pretty regularly. And it was that combination of things that really led to his death. The fact
1: that he passed away in the backseat of his blue Cadillac, it's kind of, Like poetic in a way. I mean, the car is on display in the Hank Williams Museum. There's several significant musical artists who have passed away untimely in kind of poetic or at least like ways that feel poetic in a way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Like his death really feels like the only way for the Hank Williams story to end
1: yeah you know you got Elvis who was like the king of rock he was found dead on a toilet you have uh
0: Buddy Holly was in a plane crash
1: these like very famous musicians who kind of died in unexpected ways in hindsight it's easy to apply that kind of stuff but I mean his death rocked the nation away. I mean the amount of people that attended his funeral
0: yeah it's huge it was huge because he was just at the height of his popularity you know he was on his way to a concert going from show to show like he was really in the midst of becoming country music real legend.
1: I mean, he was placed in a silver casket. It's estimated approximately somewhere between 15,000 and 25,000 people passed by this casket. And they filled an auditorium with over 2,500 mourners.
0: Yeah, and that's a lot way back for the 50s. Yeah, I mean, that's huge. When he was alive, Hank was kind of rivals with his contemporary country singer Lefty Frizzell. They were really outspoken about this rivalry. And then after Williams died, Lefty really became the guy in country music. And he actually went on to inspire the style of a lot of the other country greats like Merle Haggard and in one of Emmylou Harris's songs on her second album, which I'm absolutely sure that we'll talk about. She sings a song called Hank and Lefty, and she says, Old Hank and Lefty saved my country soul. So he was absolutely an inspiration to a whole generation of not only Americans, but like country musicians as well. And like you said,
1: he was really one of the first country artists to really bring yodeling into the genre.
0: Well, one of them. I mean, he wasn't the first person to do it. He wasn't the first. He definitely popularized it. The first person to yodel in country music is pretty widely accepted to be Jimmy Rogers, who was releasing blue yodel songs way back in the 1920s. There's a series of 13 of them where he yodels. Yeah. But Hank heard him and was inspired by him and then went on to put it in his work so it's just this cycle you know of people inspiring people and that's what's really cool about it so tell me about the album oh wait (laughs) Yeah, no, like I already said, we can't do much of that. But for simplicity's sake, in terms of like having something to score and for you to listen along with and follow, we are using the 20th Century Masters Millennium Collection compilation, which came out in 1999, even though all these songs obviously had come out a long time before that. But if you want to listen along and follow along, and I guess if you want to attribute an album to the score that we're going to give at the end, that's where you should turn your focus. Honestly, you could probably just put any best of Hank Williams playlist on Shuffle because I am almost certain that you're going to enjoy it the same amount as you would this album. Yeah. But that's a good background on Hank, I think, which takes us into factor spin, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, hang on. Uh, I don't think the mixtape is ready. He's used to having a little more time. Uh, Hey, uh, mixtape, we're ready for you already. I hope
0: we didn't catch him in the middle of something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It sounds like he's leaving.
1: (laughs) He got startled and started to run out of the room, you know? Yeah. Fight or flight instinct and all that. Hey, it's me, the mixtape. I'm here. I'm ready. Definitely wasn't scribbling notes in the margins
0: of my facts and spins. Last second preparation. (laughs) Oh, last second preparation. That means I might be able to sneak a couple points in on you. Uh, You just got me so... I'm so unconfident about myself now. In The last (laughs) two... I destroyed you in Joan Jet. Okay? Yeah, you did. I, I
1: wiped the floor with fact and spin. Oh, i got a lucky one on you. I'm hoping that I can keep riding that out. Well, let's find out. My first
0: fact, he yodeled at the Olympics. <laughs> you did it. You finally found something to repeat. <laughs> yep. Okay. So, <laughs> which Olympics did Hank yodel at? He performed at the 1952 Olympic Games held in Los Angeles slash Lake Placid, New York. Okay, so did Hank actually yodel as a performance of the Olympics, or did he just yodel for some camera crew covering the event?
1: He was part of the opening ceremony entertainment musical guests that, you know, the Olympics do. Yeah. He performed there. So I guess that's not for a TV news thing. That's for the actual Olympics. That's
0: for actually the Olympics. That's certified olympics okay so do you know who performed alongside him was he the main performer were there others with him i did not look into that information what did he sing he performed the song Sick blues
1: which you know had just come out a few years prior and was one of his bigger hits it's on the greatest hits
0: at compilation that's right we'll talk about it i really believe that that is one of his bigger hits
1: but did he perform it at the olympics
0: i have to just say that i mean the casey musgraves one was true yeah so this is a very tempting one to say is also true He is a known yodeler, True, but that's exactly why you would lie to me about it, isn't it? Oh, my gosh. You're this is just a head game. This whole fact is a head game. Oh, no, (laughs) I'm going to say spin. I'm going to say no. He did not. He did not yodel at the Olympics. You're going spin. I'm rolling the dice because we already had this fact and he is a yodeler. And I feel like you would know that I would think that he was a yodeler. And so I would be like, sure, of course, he yodeled at the Olympics. But I'm going to turn the table on you.
1: But of course, I also would know that we've played this game enough that I would know that you would know that I would know that. And so maybe I'm reverse, reverse psychology.
0: Well, we don't have all night to sit here and flip the psychology over and over and over. So I'm just going to. So you're going with spin. That's what you're locking in. You sure? (sighs) No, but yes, I'm locking in spin. All right. Well, this is a spin. Yes. Yep. It's I won this head game. I
1: really thought I had you to go in there for a moment. I almost bit. I uh, was really close on that. I was like, I, this is my opportunity to get him. Fun fact, the 1952 Olympic Games weren't even held in America.
0: I didn't think they were, especially, I mean, I was pretty skeptical. They were held, I think, in Europe on that one. Okay, well, good. That makes me especially glad that I didn't fall for that.
1: Yeah, the, the next United States Olympics wouldn't have been until like 1958 or something like that. So yeah, you won that head game, but I couldn't resist. As soon as I heard him yodel on the first track that we listened to the yodels on, that came to me and I was like, I've got to repeat that fact. I mean,
0: how could I not? Absolutely. You've been looking for a chance to repeat a fact since episode one hopefully next time when i repeat one it's true maybe i don't know we'll see well up next
1: then he won a pulitzer prize who for his lyrics for his songwriting and musical influence yes which lyrics specifically won him the award it didn't say he was rewarded this in 2010 you know posthumously oh very so.
0: posthumously so i think it was just in
1: general for his great songwriting and musical influence
0: yeah naturally um i kind of believe this I don't see any reason this wouldn't be true. He is a super influential songwriter and really ahead of his time lyrically in a lot of ways. Yeah, unless there's other information you think I should know, I feel like I'm ready to lock in fact.
1: Yeah, this was an easy one. It's a fact. I just really wanted to point out that he won that award. I think that's a really cool award for them to, I mean, so long after his death, they're still, you know, finding reasons to award him and talk about his influence. Yeah, well, it's still important. Significant amount of time. Yeah, it shows that he's kind of lasted through the decades.
0: Yeah, I think even in 2004, stuff was still being added to the National Recording Registry. Yeah. For being culturally significant, so... He's got staying power. Up next, he ran for president. Hank for president. Let's, okay. Some clarifying questions, just to be sure I'm not getting tricked on the minutia of this one. President of the United States? Yep. Legitimately. Like, not as a... No. <laughs> not legitimately. <laughs> okay, I was gonna
1: say. Obviously not legitimately. He was in his 20s. Yeah. But well, it, it's a catchy title for my fact. Right. It was uh one of those, like, mock presidential campaigns in order to help endorse
0: Eisenhower for president. Everybody likes Ike, is what they say. What was his campaign like? Did he have a slogan? Did he sing things? What was his deal?
1: It was a 19-day running, like, tour that he did with Eisenhower to endorse him for president. It was, like, the Hank Williams presidential tour. Okay, I like that. I like that a lot. He sent Eisenhower a telegram saying that it was a personal honor to endorse a military figure to lead the nation in its coming future.
0: I think that would make sense, especially if he's getting band members drafted to go fight in the war all the time. Yeah, I feel like he'd have a tremendous respect for the military, and Eisenhower was a general. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna say this is true. I'm really leaning true on this one. Going true, you're going with the fact. Yeah, I'm thinking this is a fact. Well. This one is spun no, no, I heard the confidence in your voice. Yeah,
1: he did uh, endorse Eisenhower for president. And that telegram is real, but there was no presidential campaign or anything like that. Darn. And a piece of information that I had ready, in case you had more questions, is the number 19 that I came up with for the 19-day campaign is actually how many days after Hank Williams' death before Eisenhower was sworn in.
0: Oh.
1: Eisenhower was sworn in 19 days after Hank's death, after his endorsement. Clever. So I was going to be like, oh, look at this, some weird, you know, 19 business going on. Also, it worked out because my Olympics fake fact was about the 1952. And then so this was 1952. So I was waiting on you to be like, oh, so he was doing this while yodeling at the Olympics. That's a great
0: point. Well, but the presidential campaign would have been happening more in the fall and the Olympics would have been a summer thing. But yeah, I got you on that one. Yeah, you did. I am a little disappointed, but that's okay. At least all the parts that I felt would be correct about it were correct. Yeah.
1: My last fact for you, he
0: was technically never married. Ooh, I don't know about this fact because he has two former wives. (laughs) Go on, go on, tell me more. Let's start with wife number one.
1: Yeah, wife number one, for those of you listening at home was Audrey Shepard. Uh-huh. This marriage was deemed invalid because he married her 10 days into her 60-day required reconciliation period from her previous marriage. Oh, goodness. After her divorce. So back then, after you got divorced, there was a 60-day required reconciliation period where you had to try to work things out before the divorce was finalized. But he went and married her 10 days into it.
0: Okay, how long into that marriage did they go before they realized it was invalid? Like, did they know the whole time that this was not legally a marriage? Or like, did they wait and find out later? How'd that work?
1: I don't think it was officially invalidated until later.
0: I think it was something that was after the fact or like, wait a second. Oh, like when they went to get divorced, they went, good news for you. You were never really (laughs) married in the first place. Something like that. Okay, so that's Audrey, wife number one. Tell me more about wife number two. Billie Jean Jones. That one was ruled invalid after his death by a judge because their marriage
1: happened 11 days before her divorce was finalized.
0: No, so all these women are getting divorced from their husbands to marry Hank and rushing into it too much.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And also, fun fact, the reason that this one ended up getting ruled invalid was because Hank's mother and his first not wife pushed for it for years after
0: his death until a judge finally ruled on it. She went, if I can't be married to him, no one can. (laughs) my gosh. Okay, this is wild.
1: But is it true?
0: If this is true, I had no idea this was true. And if this was false, I also had no idea that this was true because it wasn't. What are you going with, though? Well, it did. Okay, my last question, just to make sure I've got the timing correct. Did he find out that he was not legally married to Audrey before getting married to Billie Jean? Because, you know, you're kind of really making the same mistake twice. If you knowingly jump the wait period the second time, I don't know. Okay, well, that only muddies the water further. I'm going to say this is a fact. Yeah, I'm going to go with fact. All right. Well, in that case,
1: you went three for four again, because this is a true fact. Oh, buddy. I really needed that yodeling one to get you because the other two were just too interesting and too easily true. I really needed both my spins to get you.
0: I felt like this divorce one was too complicated for you to make up in a, in a little bit of a way.
1: I was honestly kind of hoping that you'd think it was too convoluted to be true. Like You're
0: like, oh, there's no way he'd make that mistake twice. Yeah, you're right. That's a good point. But it was just false enough to be true. <laughs> something like that (laughs) two truths two
1: lies this week you got three out of the four still no perfect game but i i haven't had a one where i i got you to mess up on the majority of them in a while
0: No, not since maybe episode 10. You're getting better. Or I'm getting worse. Yeah, that's that's true. Either way, this was a good round of Factor Spin. I I like all those facts. And spins? Yeah, the spins were okay too. I really needed
1: some validation there and you just refused to give it to me. All right, well, I guess off into my corner to write
0: more facts and spins. Yeah. All right, we move it on over. What did you think about Factor Spin this week? I don't ever get your thoughts on Factor Spin. Uh, You know, I'm always rooting for you. Yeah, oh, naturally.
1: So I like that you're performing really well, though. I don't like all the... I had to deal with mopey mixtaper for a couple days after the recordings whenever you do well. Yeah,
0: I'm sure. I'm sure he's always kind of a a disheveled mess for the first 48 hours. Yeah, it's really more like the first, like, 53 hours. It's a weird time frame, I know, but it's how he copes. He copes in... Weird increments. He goes in increments of 53. Crazy. Crazy, dude. <laughs> this is lucky number. Add it to the canon. Well, let's talk about album art. Oh, wait. We don't really have any... <laughs> But I will say, you know, for general old-timey country music album art, there really wasn't a huge emphasis on albums, so there wasn't a huge emphasis on album artwork. There are a ton of old country records that have a cover that's just a nice picture of the musician smiling with the title and maybe even the track list right on the front cover because mostly the cover of your record was meant to sell that physical record to you right off the store shelf. No games, no fooling around. This is the picture of the person who's singing the song. And this is the song that they're singing. Just straight advertising. Yeah, exactly. There's not enough of that
1: nowadays. Everything's got to be a gimmick.
0: Yeah, I know. What the heck? Uh, Music. (laughs) Why are you so gimmicky? Big music
1: with all their gimmicks, you know? Everybody tweet at Big Music and say, hashtag no more gimmicks. No
0: more gimmicks. I just want simple artist picture on the album cover. I'll be right back. Simple title right up front. Tell me the songs right on the front of the album. I want no mystery. I want no intrigue. I ran out of things to monologue about, so I'm just going to sit here and hang out. And I'm back. Man, you're finally back. What were you doing, grabbing a snack or something? No, but I should have grabbed a snack. That would have been a great idea. Yeah, I know. I was going to ask you what you got cooking. Are you calling me good looking? No, that's why I skipped that line specifically. Well, first off, let's talk about Hey Good Lookin'. Yeah. The song, just to avoid ambiguity, (laughs) the song. Hey Good Lookin' was released in 1951 as a single, and it reached number one on the country charts, which... You know, this is a song. I guess you'd probably know if older country is anywhere near your wheelhouse.
1: Yeah, the amount of times the song would be sung while like we were cooking dinner in my house, somebody would just break out into this. Specifically, just pretty much the first two lines, and that was about <laughs> it.
0: Yeah, well, the chorus is really all you need. Yeah, we didn't even make it all the way through the chorus, though. It was literally like it would just be the first two lines, kind of on repeat. Whatever works. So the story behind this song is that Hank was friends with the musician Jimmy Dickens. And people told Dickens that if he wanted to make it big in country music, he needed to have a hit song. So Hank Williams, being the good friend that he was, he said, I'll oblige, I'll help you write this hit country record. And Jimmy Dickens is like, great, go for it. So Hank sits down and writes Hey Good Lookin' in 20 minutes while he's on an airplane. Nice. Yeah, I know, right? He's on the plane with Dickens and Minnie Pearl and Minnie Pearl's husband. And so Jimmy Dickens says, hey, I heard you wrote a song. Can I have it now? Can I make myself a star with it? And Hank says, oh, that song's too good for you. And he kept it for himself. Dang. <laughs> Savage. It was Dang. pretty brutal. I was going to write you a song, but I ended up writing one that was too good. So sorry about your luck.
1: Hey, I wrote you a song. Oh, never mind. It's mine now. Ain't it funny? I was going to write you a song, but I ended up writing me a song instead. (laughs)
0: Luckily, Jimmy Dickens still found his own way without Hey, Good Looking in his catalog. The steel guitar in this song is a classic, and Hank has such a really strong, distinct voice. Like, it's clear as a bell. And it's this really unique tonal quality that you just don't see very much anymore, which I think gives him a surprising amount of vocal range. Because he can go low on some of these melodies, but then he still has the propensity to get up there and yodel. It's impressive. I think some of the lyrics show the age of the song.
1: (laughs) A little. He talks about having a $2 bill. Yeah, that's an oddity and he calls it Soda Pop, which I guess is still kind of a thing today. Soda Pop was a dead
0: giveaway. I think one of the things I like about older country music, I mean, speaking of the lyrics, show in their age, but it's really the ability of the songs to tell such a cool story in the lyrics. They're all so short, but all of these songs generally paint a really complete picture and then still have time for rock and fiddle solos. I think a lot of their charm lies in the simplicity of their lyrics, but also the thoroughness of their storytelling.
1: Yeah. Can we talk about a moment of buffoon? that pops up in Chorus 2.
0: Sure. Yeah. What do you got?
1: We get no more looking. I know I've been tookin. Like what a great, like, I feel like that maybe was less buffoonery back in the day, but in today's lingo, the word tookin is just really funny. <laughs>
0: yeah. He's a man that grew up in 1930s Alabama. I think he gets a tookin pass, a tookin token.
1: Listen, let's be
0: real. Everybody gets one token token. And he used his right here. So your buffoon complaint is invalid. Also, he kind of takes on a more
1: faithful persona starting in chorus too rather than more of you know the like player persona that i feel like is going on in that first course.
0: yeah in the first course without much of the context it does feel a little bit like he's calling to a woman you know hey you over there hey good looking how's about coming over here with me
1: yeah then you get in the course too he talks about keeping steady company which you know bang this steady was like- going
0: steady yeah shoot he even talks about throwing his date book yeah yeah he's really willing to commit which he actually released a ton of songs under a pseudonym Oh, really? More than the 40 that are attributed to him now? Or were they just released first under a pseudonym and then...
1: Yeah, he wrote under the pseudonym Luke the Drifter. Pretty catchy name. Where he released several religious, more like recitations rather than songs. But That's right, yes. They were all religious based. He was afraid that like the radios and stuff wouldn't play them. And so he released them under a pseudonym. Yeah. They wouldn't bring down his playability. That's kind of what that little bit reminded me of there where he kind of seems to... Right. Switch gears midway through the song.
0: Yeah, definitely. I'm sure you know about other artists who have kind of tried to adopt that pseudonym midway through their careers, like Garth Brooks oh, yeah. and Chris Gaines. Best one, Chris Gaines. That's right. I'm not a Garth Brooks fan, I'm a Chris Gaines fan. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, I did know about Luke the Drifter thing, and that's really cool. Yeah, he does have a lot of religious songs in his catalog, and we'll talk about one or two of them later on, but I think it's interesting to see that that stuff is so important to him, and yet he tried to keep it so separate from the rest of his life which I guess is a fitting metaphor for someone who is in several marriages at that time and drinking a lot and no, he was struggling in with marriages. a lot of personal issues. Okay, <laughs> yeah, on a technical level. But, you know, just that separation is an interesting thing to consider. Yeah. I was thinking about this song, and I think we take a lot of what we hear in Hank's music for granted today. The chords and the melodies and stuff, it feels second nature to us, but that's because the stuff that it inspired has been around us our whole lives. Yeah. He wrote the book on this stuff, you know. He was among the first to really push the boundaries of what country music was at the time.
1: You know, it's like how half the advice in the Art of War is really common sense nowadays. There's like no dub, but that was like newfound knowledge back then.
0: Yeah, somebody really had to boy. do it
1: first. If you think you're gonna lose, run away. It's like <laughs> like that. It was like no, really. <laughs> but back then, that was legitimate advice yeah back in hank williams day this was all new ways of doing music or like new chords you know like you said he wrote the book on country music in a way
0: yeah Some famous people have covered Hey Good Lookin', too. I found a lot of covers for a lot of these songs, so at the end of each one, I'll give you a little rundown of the cool covers. Yeah, most of these songs are going to have covers. But among the famous people who have covered Hey Good Lookin', we've got Johnny Cash, Ray Charles, and even Kenny Chesney and Jimmy Buffett have covered this song. The next track we're talking about is Jambalaya, On the Bayou. On the Bayou. That's right. This one came out in 1952, and it peaked atop the U.S. country charts. And at number 20 overall. So that's pretty significant one of his biggest hits actually which kind of surprised me because it, it's not one that i'm super familiar with i don't think this is one that's necessarily had as much of a legacy as "Love Sick blues or hey good looking it's named of course after the cajun food jambalaya and the bayous and the swamplands of the southern u.s he talks about jambalaya crawfish pie and filet gumbo yeah they a great song this is uh it's a delicious song <laughs> that's true It is. hey good looking what you got cooking Got cooking some jambalaya. <laughs> yeah, I can I didn't make
1: that joke. It's like this is just a catchy song and the way he sings it he has like that I don't even know how to describe it that um
0: drawl I mean right he's got a real twang I guess yeah just the draw
1: yeah I don't know but it's like a higher pitch draw like the way he had some of those notes he's like oh he does this like almost like his voice is slightly cracking yeah but yet it's like stylistic I don't know how to describe go listen to the song
0: and you'll understand what I mean It's sounds great I love it like I said yeah it's a very unique timbre to his voice clear as a bell in a way that you don't hear much
1: I I just want to say you know you're given kanye all these props for you know his his ability to craft lyrics but this man does a line where he sings i can't even know if i can pronounce it thimba do font no the place is buzzing i don't even know i don't even know how to (laughs) pronounce those words
0: but he pronounces them really well and the way it just bounces along as he says that it's those are some big words he's using. Yeah, shoot. He even speaks French in this one. Let me set the scene. This is a party song. He's taking his woman, Yvonne. Oh, yeah. And they're going to pull a pirogue, which is a small boat that you would stand on and push through the river with a big old pole. And they're going to a Cajun party with her family. Ah. He even speaks a little French ah. to further immerse you into these like Creole themes. He goes out of his way to include so many little details about Cajun things, swamp things that just really, again... They paint that vivid picture of the setting and they pay great homage to the bayou. But he still found a way to make it uniquely his own. You know, it's more of a generally appealing version of a more traditional Cajun song. And he did it very intentionally. According to his biographers, they said, and I quote, ethnic music is usually unpalatable for a mass market unless it's diluted in some way. The broader audience related to Jambalaya in a way that it could never relate to a true Cajun two-step led by an asthmatic accordion. The way
1: he rhymes Yvonne with different things throughout the song... Also, just is really fun. It really is. Can folks come to see Yvonne by the dozen? It's like there's some
0: slant rhymes going on in there. Yeah, but they're all pretty seamless. You know, it doesn't feel like he's going out of his way to make them.
1: Yeah. One of the less seamless ones is when he shortens money to Mon.
0: <laughs> Swap my Mon to buy Yvonne. <laughs> what Shinito? <need-o. laughs> yeah, well, you know. <laughs> But it's a lighthearted song, so he can get away with that. I mean, yeah, no. Uh, Not all buffoonery is bad. Oh, yeah, definitely. What I want to talk about real quick, too, is the phrase Mio Mayo. Oh, it's such a clever, really bold way to make that rhyme with Bayou. Yeah. And it's the glue that holds the song together, I think. You know, it's always a Mio Mayo on the "bio." Like, that's always where the rhyme lands. It's kind of just a touchstone as you move through the song for all the rest of the things that he says. You always wind up back at Mio Mayo.
1: Except for when he decides to put a random O on the end of the line to make a rhyme with Bayou.
0: Yeah, he does that, too. But <laughs> it's just a fun song. It is. Some of the famous covers for Jambalaya belong to Brenda Lee, John Fogarty, and more recently Little Big Town. Oh, really? Yeah, who knew, right? I've been listening to them in the, since high school. I know, yeah.
1: Sorry, Jambalaya. You were delicious, but we gotta move you on over so we can talk about Move It On Over. <laughs> you were delicious.
0: <laughs> Don't tell Jambalaya it was delicious. Move it on over.
1: This is the other song that would get sang randomly in my house.
0: Oh, I bet. Yeah, you had dogs and stuff, right? Oh, yeah. Moving on.
1: <laughs> it really, just whenever you needed somebody to move,
0: yeah. there was a chance that that would come up. Naturally. Moving on over was Hank's debut on his second label, MGM, and it came out in 1947. It was recorded during the same session as I Saw the Light, which we'll get to in a bit. So last week, we learned about 12 Bar Blues songs from Joan Jett's cover of Nag, and this song is another great example of that. Yep, and it's way better. Oh, I think it works really, really well here, yeah. It's a close race, but I think this does beat nag.
1: No, because here, you know, they use the phrase move it on over, over and over. But it's like, it's the call response, right? The move it on over is the echo to everything else being said. Right. So it works way better than just saying the word nag over and over.
0: Yeah. Now, if you're a little bit confused on the term 12 bar blues and you don't want to or refuse for some reason to go listen to the Joan Jett episode that came out last week. Yeah, go listen. 12 bar blues is a chord progression that uses the pattern one for one Four, five, four, one. But we talked last week about how there are a lot of songs that use that same progression, like Elvis's "You Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog" or "Johnny Be Good" by Chuck Berry. So it's probably a sound that you're going to mostly recognize. But because this song is 12-bar blues, a lot of people consider "Moving It On Over to be an early example of what would turn into rock and roll music. You know, I kind of got that vibe on a couple of
1: these songs. Well, you know, Elvis was inspired in part by his music, and you could almost hear some of the, like, Elvis tones in some of these songs, especially one like this with that 12-bar blues.
0: Absolutely. I mean, Move On Over, because your tall dog's moving in, and then Elvis does Ain't Nothing But A Hound Dog, and also the 12-bar blues style.
1: Fair enough. Yeah, maybe maybe there's a a weird connection between dogs and 12 bar
0: blues 12 bark blues <laughs> i like move it on over you know it's a song about you know when someone's having relationship trouble it's sometimes called being in the doghouse Yep. This is that, but like literally. He's having trouble with his wife, who has effectively kicked him out of the house to go sleep with the dog. And so he's in the doghouse telling the dog to move it on over. Classic,
1: classic dog metaphor.
0: I mean, I guess.
1: Guess it probably wasn't classic when he did it though. Was being in the doghouse a popular turn of phrase back then, or
0: it was already an expression. The first people that said in the doghouse this is in 1926, but it hasn't been around for long. Mm. It's kind of a lighthearted song, but also I think it definitely has a more serious undertone. And his ability to strike that balance between the two is really what sets him apart. One of his fiddlers, Jerry Rivers, he said that Hank's novelty songs, quote, weren't novelty. They were serious, not silly. And that's why they were much better accepted and better selling. Move It On Over hits home because half the people he was singing to were in the doghouse with the old lady. So I guess it was a very relatable song at the time. Uh, yeah. And it actually really took him to the top pretty quickly. He got lots of popular recognition like radio play and stuff. He was even invited to the Louisiana Hayride, which is like the Louisiana minor leagues for the Grand Ole Opry. You know, it was another really popular radio show. Oh, okay, It wasn't an actual hayride no he wasn't on an actual hayride singing "Moving on over this this pair of covers on this one that i found surprised me it's been covered by bill haley and his comments which i get because you know rock and roll but it's also been covered by george thoroughgood and the destroyers of bad to the bone fame bad to the bone well that makes sense that makes yeah, sense. Right. They're talking I,
1: about being bad to the bone dogs like bones. dogs like
0: bones oh you're right didn't even think about that yeah See, that's why I'm here. Provide that kind of insight. Well, you're here, but if you were long gone, I'd be lonesome and blue. Why would you be blue? That's a good point. I might be a little better off. Wow. All right. No, you led that one. You were you led me there. I was trying to make a joke about you literally being blue, but you just went with like you'd be better off. See how it is. But you're here. That's the important part. That's the important part is I don't have to be blue. Mm. They're nice. Anyway, let's talk about Long Gone Lonesome Blues. Here is your yodeling. Oh, yeah. I'm gone. <laughs> you know we're recording when you do things like that, right? I know. <laughs> <laughs> This one's very similar to "Love Sick Blues in a lot of ways, and that's one that we're going to focus on later. But they're similar because Hank was so successful with Lovesick Blues, and he wanted to see if doing the same thing a second time would also be successful. And shocker. And so he wrote another yodeling song with the word blue in the title. Long Gone Lonesome Blues and Lovesick Blues uh, is practically the same title. Yeah. But he did have similar success with it. This came out in 1950, and by March, it was at the top of the charts. He got some of the inspiration for this one while he was out on a fishing trip. The story goes that he couldn't sleep the night before, so he was kind of in a daze out there on the lake. And his friend tried to snap him out of it and said, did you come here to fish or to watch the fish swim by? And that's what kickstarted the song. He already had the title Long Gone Lonesome Blues in mind, but that line about coming to fish or watch the fish, that's what kickstarted the verse and kind of got him going with it. This is one of those songs that, I mean, if you exclude the yodeling, which is pretty sad, like wailing in itself, but it's a sad song with a happy exterior in a lot of ways. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, he says, I went down to the river to watch the fish swim by. But I got to the river so lonesome I wanted to die, oh lord. And then I jumped in the river, but the doggone river was dry. She's long gone, and now I'm lonesome blue. I mean, that's, oh, that's tragic. Lyrically, I think this is one of the absolute strongest Hank Williams songs. Period. Out of all of them. Yes, I would agree with that. This song was actually the debut song for Hank Williams Jr. 14 years later. And it was also covered by Cheryl Crow. Oh. So
1: we'll talk about it probably when we get to Lovesick Blues. But I'm curious to know which one you like better.
0: That's hard. I'm going to have to give the edge to Long Gone Lonesome Blues. Really? Because this is this is the one that Hank actually wrote. So in terms of songs that Hank Williams wrote, Long Gone Lonesome Blues probably takes the cake. Fair enough. The so next song we should talk about is Setting the Woods on Fire.
1: Yeah. It's going to get the honorable mention for Connor
0: Top 3. Top 3? Wow. I mean, it's good. I didn't know if it would be Top 3 good for you. It's honorable mention, not Top 3. It's honorable mention. Why don't we call it honorable Mention? What well, do we do now? <laughs> I was going to say, is there a good reason not to call it Connorable Mention?
1: <laughs> I kind of hate it, so I guess that means it's fitting.
0: <laughs> yep. <laughs> Set in the Woods on Fire was one of the later singles that was released when Hank was alive. It came out in 1952, and it peaked at number two on the country and western charts. This is the first of the songs we've talked about that Hank did not write. It came from his publisher and his producer, Fred Rose, and then Ed Nelson. I
1: don't know I just really like the way this one starts it really gets you ramped up and ready to go that kind of energy holds the entire song
0: oh absolutely it's a super up-tempo song a very let's go set the woods on fire kind of song it never really lulls yeah exactly it doesn't even a little bit you'll listen
1: to songs and they'll be more up-tempo but then there'll be a section where it either just gets repetitive and you lose interest or lulls in tempo in some way or an energy level and none of his songs really because that. that's why it's his greatest hits, right?
0: Right. There's actually some speculation that Chet Atkins played the guitar on this track, which I totally believe. I also just want to believe it, but it has a very similar sound to something Chet Atkins might have done. So we may never know, but that'd be cool. And here's a fun thing about Setting the Woods on Fire, too. This song was featured in a 2007 episode of The Batman, the animated series. Really? Yeah, Joker and Harley Quinn sing it together as they're, you know, uh, setting Gotham on fire. Oh. Yeah, I know, little Batman trivia with your Hank Williams podcast. How about that? "Setting the Woods on Fire" has been covered by George Jones, Jerry Lee Lewis, Porter Wagoner, and others. A lot of country folks have covered "Setting the Woods on Fire." Hank Williams, he does sing a lot of blues songs, doesn't he? Or at least songs with blues in the title. Yes, he does. The next one we're talking about is Honky Tonk Blues. Honky Tonk Blues is another later single. This one came out in 1952 as well. And a honky tonk, for those of you who might not be familiar, it's just a fancy term that really just means a bar with a stage. You come to Nashville and there are tons of bars around called honky tonks where you just go drink and listen to music. That's really all it is.
1: Any of you that listen to country music, 1st were introduced to that phrase with the song honky tonk. (laughs) <laughs> That's
0: right. <laughs> Quick, who sings that song, James? Is that Trace Adkins? Uh. Yeah, it's Trace Adkins. You're making me doubt myself. Yeah. Yeah, if, if you're a country person, you might have known Honky Tonk from Trace Adkins. You might have known it from any number of country places. If you're not a country person... You probably know it from Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones. Honky Tonk Women. But this isn't either of those things. There's no Badonkadonk. There's no women. This is Honky Tonk Blues. I'm sure Hank Williams, you know, is getting plenty of Honky Tonk Badonkadonk,
1: (laughs) all right? Well, yeah.
0: (laughs) He's Hank Williams. He had two not-wives. Right. Honky Tonk Blues is, I guess, a song that they just couldn't get right. I read about how they tried at least three separate times to record it years apart. And it really only panned out during a 1951 session. And even then, they didn't include all the lyrics and verses from their first demos. Yeah, crazy, right? Honky Tonk Blues is a song about a farm kid telling his parents he's planning on moving to the big city. And he does. And eventually dances till his shoes wear out and decides that he's probably better off back at home on the farm. And again, for such a short song... That's a pretty complete arc, I think. Yeah, he's really good at kind of just telling a story efficiently. Very much. So then
1: what is the answer? Do you like this one or Honky Tonkin better?
0: I think I like Honky Tonkin better.
1: I would agree with you on that one. I would say that's the correct answer.
0: Okay, good. I got that one right. Which
1: seems to make sense if this song they weren't even happy with, really. I know. Well, I mean, imagine,
0: yeah, trying to take years to record this. It'd be hard to do. Charlie Pride famously covered honky-tonk blues, as did the nitty-gritty dirt band. The next song we're talking about is Why Don't You Love Me. That's what I was asking you earlier when you told me you were better off without me. This one came out in 1950, and surprise, surprise, another number one on the country western charts. This one, much like Move It On Over, is inspired by his rocky relationship with his wife, in quotation marks, his, his wife, Audrey, but it's a little bit less lighthearted. It's a tad more serious than Move It on over dog, but it's interesting because it's so self critical. You know, it really shifts the focus of your typical bad relationship song away from the partner and onto himself.
1: Yeah, which I think is fitting. I mean, you're not Hank Williams and don't know you have problems. I mean, right. He knew he struggled with all sorts of problems, and I'm sure some of that translated to his personal life and relationships, right? Yeah. So it'd be very easy for him, I think, to write a song from that perspective yeah
0: no doubt i mean he kind of answers the question why don't you love me in the song itself He starts off with saying, why don't you just be like you used to be? How come you find so many faults with me? And then he kind of ambiguously says, somebody's changed. So let me give you a clue. Why don't you love me like you used to do? And on the surface level, it kind of sounds like he's saying you've changed and that's why you don't love me. But really, I think deep underneath the surface, it feels more like I've changed and I'm different than the way we were before. And I guess you don't love the ways that I've changed. Really?
1: That's not how I interpreted. it.
0: Oh, what do you got? I interpreted it more as,
1: you know, when he says the line, I'll give you a hint. Why don't you love me like you used to do? Uh-huh. That was him saying, like, obviously, you're the one that's changed because you're the one that, that's doing something different, right? You're the one who doesn't love me like you used to. So obviously, you're the one that changed. But I think it's still meant to be kind of a diss on himself, right? Uh-huh. I think you're right in that setting where he's saying it's almost more like he's subtly saying she's outgrown his less endearing qualities or she's like come to no longer just let them, you know, skirt on by. She's no longer happy with the way he acts. And since he hasn't changed, you know, because people change, they're supposed to change, they become more more mature or they grow as their life goes on. And the fact that he's still stuck in old version of him maybe is the problem, right? Yeah, he hasn't grown in any way. And that's kind of how I interpreted it, was that, yeah, she's the one that's changed, but the problem is that he hasn't.
0: Yeah, interesting. Interesting. There's a part of the song, too, that kind of reinforces that point of view, where he says, ain't had no loving like a hugging and a kissing in a long, long while. We don't get nearer or further or closer than a country mile. Yeah. That kind of implies this stagnance. You know, the relationship isn't moving, mm-hmm. whether it's together or apart. We're just stuck right where we have been. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know which of those ways is correct. I like them both. I do, too. Audience. Tell us what you got. Maybe you got something way better than either of those. Yeah. Audience, bombard us with your Hank Williams knowledge. Anyway, the next song, Honky Tonkin. You like this one better, huh? I did like Honky Tonkin better than Honky Tonk Blues. It's just a lot less blue for some reason, you know? (laughs) I can't put my finger on it, but this song came out in 1948 and it made its way up to number 14 on the country music charts. This is a song with another really crazy story behind it. The first version that he released came out under Sterling Records, his first record company, but then when Hank moved over to MGM, they decided they wanted to recut it, since the song looked really poised to be successful, so they wanted to make their own second version. But to avoid any sort of confusion or conflict, about having two of the same versions released, his publisher went out and bought up all the copies of the Sterling single. All of the existing copies of Honky Tonkin, he bought them, which ran him like $2,000. And then he sold them to MGM, who then released their own version of the single. Weird. Yeah, I know, right? That's like the equivalent of like $20,000 in today's money. Yeah, it's not cheap, honestly. I mean, oof. But it was a worthwhile investment because they speculated correctly. And Honky Tonkin, I mean, at number 14 on the charts, that's a pretty successful song. Have we found the original version? Does it exist somewhere? Yeah, it does exist out there, the Sterling Records version, digitally and physically. So if you're interested, you could go check out the two versions and hear the differences between them, however slight they may be. I might do that after this recording. By all means. This song was wild to me, okay? Because it's almost one chord the entire way through. So he doesn't have this usual structure of a chord progression to build his melody around. He has to do something compelling with just his melody and his rhythm. I think he nails it. Yeah. I think he executes it really well because, yeah, with all the lead guitar pieces in there and his vocal, which was like top notch, by the way, so smooth. Like he just slides from note to note effortlessly. But because of all of that stuff, I feel like he can really disguise the fact that there are no chord changes because I hardly even noticed it. know until i was really really closely listening to it i was like wait a minute he never changes chords i didn't notice. yeah i know it's fascinating that that works so well without being boring or getting stale who covered this song this song was covered by towns van zant which is a big name if you are peeking behind the scenes of country music and waylon jennings also covered this one he included it on his 1992 album which was called "Old waylon sings old hank <laughs> So, you can imagine that he's covered quite a few of these songs. What a title. It's short, sweet, and to the point. Remember, I said old country music? They got their album titles figured out. They're not playing around. No gimmicks. Well, up next, you know, we're making our way through this. We're on the Lonesome Whistle. No, we're not. I guess we can be if you want. If you just want to skip over Lost Highway. I totally skipped over Lost Highway. It's a big one. <laughs> Lost Highway. It's another must know Hank Williams song. This one was not a Hank Williams original, it was written by a blind country singer, Leon Payne. People called him the Blind Balladeer, but Hank's cover of it came out in 1949, and his biographers say that even though he didn't write it himself, the song sounds like pages torn out of his diary.
1: Oh, This one is one of my favorite of the blues songs on this uh, album. I really like this. It's
0: so good. (laughs) And it's maybe his most famous song? I don't know. There are a couple that are in contention. It's really hard to say which one's the most famous, because... You
1: think this is the most famous? Really?
0: In a certain... It's probably the one you hear about the most, I think. Let me modify it to that. Because people have used this title, Lost Highway, for books, movies, documentaries. Yeah. Everything about Hank Williams is Lost Highway. Lost Highway has really come to be a metaphor for Hank Williams' career and his sudden death. Really, that parallel with the lost potential and the talent that he possessed... It was just so suddenly gone
1: yeah I think this one goes in the counter top three.
0: Oh, absolutely and I, I mean just let's let's take a minute and ponder some of these lyrics okay I'm a rolling stone all alone and lost for a life of sin I've paid the cost yeah,
1: and just the way he sings it like you said he's just so smooth as he transitions from note to note yeah oh the kind of cadence that it has there's not much there too you know it's just him singing with a couple of instruments it's
0: not processed no auto-tune <laughs> well yeah no man Machine Gun Kelly really got you going on this auto-tune thing.
1: I just, I thought I'd point out that doesn't happen much. You know, everything is processed now that we listen to. You don't get anything unless you, are right. like, even when you go listen to a live concert, like, you know, they've got, like, the auto-tune stuff going on there.
0: Yeah, very much. Nothing
1: is raw anymore, like what you would have been hearing back on the radio.
0: And that's, I mean, part of what makes them so impressive, you know? You hear the song on the radio or on your Spotify or whatever, and that's the way it sounded when they played it live. There's really no chance for them to overdub much or track multiple tracks at the same time like this is so old that it really is just a live recording more or less i mean listen to the third verse too i was just a lad nearly 22 neither good nor bad just a kid like you and now i'm lost too late to pray lord i've paid the cost on the lost highway yeah that's just marvelous i mean flawless that's a flawless verse not a syllable wasted nor overused not a syllable wasted nor overused doesn't need more doesn't need less This song obviously has been covered by all kinds of country legends, but it's been covered by a lot of others, including Bob Dylan, Tom Petty, U2, Coldplay, and more.
1: (laughs) And more.
0: That's right. Coldplay really got me. I did not expect to see Coldplay on the list of Hank Williams covers. But now it's time to move on to I Heard That Lonesome Whistle.
1: It was like the whistle earlier that I did that you didn't hear.
0: I almost heard that whistle. (laughs) Oh, listen, I hear that lonesome whistle. Do you hear it, audience? <laughs> anyway, that's the song. Now we're gonna talk about it. I saw that. no, I'm just kidding. I don't know how much of the whistling came through, but I was doing uh staying alive. Staying alive. That's that's <laughs> not the Lonesome Whistle that Hank heard blowing. No. This song came out in 1951 and it was his 14th consecutive top 10 single. Wow. I know what a milestone. It's a train and prison song, which is a really common thread throughout old country music. Like, it's bizarre how much old country music is about prisons and trains. People speculate that Lonesome Whistle might. might Might have been part of the inspiration for Johnny Cash's Folsom Prison Blues, which is also a very famous prison and train song. Oh
1: yeah that's another that's another artist that you can really
0: hear the framework for in the song absolutely and in this song too he really breaks the norms of traditional country music when he uses that o in lonesome to emulate the train whistle you know because at this point there are some kind of stiff unwritten rules in music everything up until this point is pretty largely formal you perform in suits you strum straight chords you don't slide to your notes and stuff but hank and other people along with him his contemporaries they really started to chip away at a lot of. These musical norms, especially with their vocal style. You know, I mentioned him and Lefty were really the big ones to challenge traditional singing methods. Yeah. And that's especially evident right here with the low, low, wonesome, you know, where he really tries to drag it out and make it whistle like a train. Also, the reason that this song has a parenthetical title, and it's not just I Heard That Lonesome Whistle, was because they wanted the title to be short enough to fit on a jukebox card. So they cut I Heard That from the title, and it just mostly became Lonesome Whistle.
1: I like it just being Lonesome Whistle, though. But I feel like that has a nice ring to it.
0: I Heard That is clunky, yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad they saw the light and decided to make that change. I saw the light. This is another really, really popular Hank song. I like this one a lot, honestly.
1: Like, I usually do the Connor Top 3, and I'm having such a hard time picking. I got lost highway. That's about it. I got the personal connections to Hey Good Looking and Move It On Over. And they're just fun songs. But then you have songs like this. I saw the light that are just like when he hits the chorus, like the beginning part's not really that special. It's whatever. But then he hits that chorus and it just smacks you in the face.
0: Yeah, it does. So what you're saying is you can't put three in your top three this week. So you're just picking a favorite song? No. Given the
1: right argument, I could be persuaded to remove Lost Highway.
0: Oh, so they're just all so close. Yeah. I was
1: pretty confident when we talked about Lost Highway to say it was in the top three but you know I could be persuaded against that now that we're talking about songs like this and I'm thinking back on like Move It On Over and Hey Good Looking and Setting the Wood on Fire is pretty good.
0: Yeah I know. I think I'm going to
1: pull another Dua Lipa and just say all 12 songs are in the Connor Top 3.
0: Well I Saw the Light was one of the first songs he recorded for MGM and it was released in 1948. It actually became one of the main songs he would use to close out his live shows. Lovesick Blues was another one of the popular choices. He would kind of alternate between those the story goes that his mom was driving him back from a show in 1947 and he was kind of dozed off drunk in the backseat you know as one does and when they were getting close to home in montgomery his mom saw the airport nearby and to let hank know that they were almost back she kind of stirred him up and said hey i see the light and that same month he wrote up a draft of the song so that's kind of where seeing the light as a metaphor comes from in this song
1: could you imagine just being able to write such an awesome song off of a random thing that was said to you oh my gosh no I can't it's incredible like imagine you were driving down the road and someone just said to you hey look there's a Wendy's up on the right and you were like I'm gonna write a song called Wendy's on the right and it became like a hit song
0: a hit song for a century I mean like we're still talking about it today in 2021 he's still winning Pulitzer Prizes for it in the 21st century Yeah. And it's been out for at least 50 years at that point. It's unreal. Side note, though,
1: when he's on the right, it's definitely going to be on Connor's Hippin' and Hoppin' album.
0: Yeah, okay, I'm waiting for it. I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) Yeah, this song is another thing that's really at the core of most traditional country music, religion. This is really Hank Williams' type of him. And I guess it really reinforces the idea that he was a tragic figure. You know, some of these songs, Lost Highway and Long Gone Lonesome Blues, they paint this picture of a really sad or flawed individual. And this song feels like a really genuine plea for a redemption, like a cry for a second chance. No more sorrow, no more night. Yeah. There is a Tom Hiddleston movie with Elizabeth Olsen about Hank Williams that takes its title from this song. And I watched the trailer for it and it looks pretty darn good. I've seen it. Oh, you've already seen it. Cool. Well, is it good?
1: Listen, we can have a spin it movie night. I'll watch it again. It was it was good. I enjoyed it. Tom Hiddleston, you know, not really the kind of person you'd expect to uh, be in a movie
0: like that. <laughs> but uh... no, it was a little. I mean, throughout the whole trailer, you hear Tom Hiddleston singing Hank Williams. And, I mean, nothing compares to actual Hank singing actual Hank, but it wasn't as far off as I expected. And at the same time, I was like thoroughly disappointed in it. I don't know. I don't know how to <laughs> explain it. He didn't He didn't do a bad job, but also he had some big boots to fill.
1: Yeah, I think it does an exceptionally well job for, you know, having a British accent and trying to sing a song with Southern drawl.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. I feel like that, that alone is impressive. Last but definitely not least, we have "Love Sick Blues. Which you didn't like better than Long Gone Lonesome Blues. No, no, I said of the songs that Hank Williams wrote, I think Long Gone Lonesome Blues is the best. You did a sneaky clarifier there, okay. I did because "Love Sick Blues almost predates Hank Williams even being alive. It was written for a 19... 19- 1922 musical called oh Ernest. if you ask me to like name a musical written in 1922 like to make up a fake one i feel like oh Ernest would be near the top of my fake name list (laughs) i feel like this is also probably a good time to talk about tin pan alley because i don't know when it's going to come up again next on this podcast maybe never i hope not so you know in nashville country music was the thing and all your country songwriters would come to the city to write and perform well in the 1920s the same thing was happening in new york with popular music at that time and there was a string in New York City that was home to tons of music publishers, an actual physical place. So that's where all the songwriters would go. And they would be in there cranking out all these cookie cutter hit pop songs all day. And people that were walking down the street said that when all these publishers had their windows open and all the pianos and songwriters were doing their thing at the same time, it sounded like someone was banging on a bunch of tin pans. So the area earned the nickname Tin Pan Alley. And then in time, that's the term that people started to use for all of the music of that style that was produced there. So this musical, Oh Ernest, and then... And therefore, this song, Lovesick Blues, is pretty much in the style of an old-timey Tin Pan Alley song.
1: Hmm, that's a cool bit of trivia.
0: Yeah, remember when we talked about the Louisiana Hayride show that he was able to get on in 1948? The one that wasn't a real Hayride? Right, that's not a real Hayride, the radio show. That show is where Hank started to play this song. The first time that he covered it, he played it on the Hayride, and people loved it. They went crazy. So he decided to record his own cover, and his you know, record label was all against it. They were like, don't do it. Why are you doing this cover of this, you know, musical song? Whatever. And he was recording in Cincinnati at the time. And they did the entire song during the last 30 minutes of their recording session. And they only did two takes. That blows me away. All it took. Yeah, I mean if that's all it takes, that's all it takes. But that's crazy. Impressive. I know. Oh, just imagine being able to sit down with a band in 30 minutes. And Crank Out, Love Sick Blues. Oh, God. It came out in 1949, like I said, and it blew up. Up. The single sold 50,000 copies in the first two weeks. It's interesting because
1: right we have all this great music from from this artist and he's regarded as like one of the, you know, founding fathers of country music in a way.
0: I mean, not in a way, like in the way. Yeah, he is.
1: I mean, right. I mean, country music existed before him, but not like how we know it today. Yeah. But it's like he died so young, he didn't really have a chance to either one, even maybe reach his full potential or two, in a Machine Gun Kelly kind of way, have his downfall to sell tickets to. You know, he kind of yeah. ended at what was his current peak. And we never got to see if it
0: would go up or down from there. I mean, that's true. He lived his career on the rise. Yeah. Who knows
1: if it would have kept going or if he would have plateaued.
0: I don't know. But you make an excellent point that all of these things that he's done, all these accomplishments and stuff, he was getting before he was 29 years old. It's crazy. In the 13 years between 16 and 29, just imagine all this, even in a career that spans a normal 70-year, 80-year lifetime. These are some insane accomplishments. Accomplishments, and he did it in just over a decade. Let alone it being a young age, you
1: know, Yeah. take that time frame and splice it onto any age and you'll be hard pressed to find anyone who's had such a lasting impact on anything.
0: That's a great point. It's very true. Let alone to have done it basically when you're still, you know, who's still a kid. You're still a kid for part of it. Well, yeah, yeah. And then a young adult for the rest of it. <laughs> yeah. Unreal. Sick Blues was number one on Billboard's country and western chart, and it made its way up to number 24 on the most played songs in jukeboxes list. So that's an honor. And it was dubbed the best hillbilly record Record of the year by the music industry magazine Cashbox. Nice. It got so well known that people even started calling him the Lovesick Blues Boy. I saw that nickname. It's hardly a nickname, isn't it? I mean, I feel like that's just you're referring to him by the song that he's really well known for. <laughs> you wouldn't say, like, who's the guy that sings Lovesick Blues? And someone would go, oh, you mean the Lovesick Blues Boy? And you'd be like, yeah, him. Who is he?
1: like that doesn't answer the question sure it does you're not a true hank williams fan. (laughs) yeah
0: you're not a true hank williams fan if you can't name hank williams by anything other than the lovesick blues boy (laughs) this song's been featured in forrest gump in the shawshank redemption and in several other movies and of course it went viral yet again in 2018 when that video of mason ramsey the kid who yodeled this in his local walmart came out yes I feel like, honestly, I think Mason Ramsey probably got a lot of people into Hank Williams for the first time. Time to final spin. Yeah, that's pretty much all we're going to talk about today. I think that is time for final spin. (laughs) So, what are your overall thoughts?
1: Again, I know it's weird because it's a Greatest Hits album
0: and all that. Yeah, Greatest Hits, it's tough to judge sometimes. But, I mean, man, did we really ever get some good stuff on this? You're right. I think he's just a a masterful songwriter, first and foremost. That's what this batch of songs tells me. Second, I'm just really reminded that he's such a good singer and performer. You know, I think he really has cornered the market on that in the 1950s. And I mean, man, just, just what a legend. I agree. Not only country music, but music in general. To have the career that he had under the circumstances that he was living with it's nothing short of phenomenal that he was the man that he was
1: isn't it weird how tragedy and greatness seem to go hand in hand
0: yeah it is strange all that said though i'm not really sure how to score all this you know because it's tough to keep it in its proper historical context and it's hard to you know score this in a way that reflects him as the boundary pusher that he is yeah uh,
1: i kind of felt the same way so much of what makes this music so good is the impact that it has. Like, I mean, you can listen to these songs and pick out the later influences it would have. you like, okay, I can see how that has influenced this version of this part of the genre, or this specific artist, as we kind of highlighted a couple of times. Outside of the occasional like trip into the past, This isn't necessarily music I would be putting on and playing for like my morning drive to work, you know? I like older music. I like the 70s, 80s, 90s music. Yeah. Getting back into the 40s, 50s, we're getting a little far back. But it's such good music when you listen to it. It's just not music I necessarily want to listen to all the time.
0: Yeah, it's a whole different set of criteria, it almost feels like. And I think in a lot of ways, my score reflects that. Yeah, I think mine does too. I'm not going to say that I'm content with my score on this. This one, I think I'm scoring it more in the context of I don't know, I, I guess how good it is as a collection of songs, and for that reason, I think its score may appear lower at face value than it actually deserves to be or than it would be in its proper 1950s context.
1: Yeah, so it's gonna feel too low, Bingo. especially for the amount of praise that we've given it and how great it truly is.
0: Yeah, it's hard, so just know, audience, that it does pain us a little bit to say what we're about to say. <laughs> I think for music, it's a mixed bag because his melodies are also creative. We talked about Honky Tonkin is mostly made up of one chord, but the musical genius of it is in the way that he builds the melody around it in spite of that lack of chord progression. And some of these other songs are so catchy, like the yodeling and lovesick blues is off the charts. But then other songs feel like old country through and through, you know, and that's not a bad thing. But I don't think they stand out in my mind as musically distinct from a lot of other stuff. You know, the 12 bar blues or set in the woods on fire, you know, it all kind of is taken from that same basket. I think I'm gonna have to give music a 77.
1: 77.
0: Yeah. The score I'm the most unhappy with right now is lyrics. And I think I'm conflicted because, like we talked about, such a good storyteller. And yet, everything on these songs that we talked about and stuff, it's all very face value, you know? Everything is pretty much at the rock bottom level. Like, there's no need to dig deep into any of these lyrics because everything is laid out right in front of you on a silver platter. So the score that I'm the least happy with is lyrics, and I'm going to have to give it a 72, just for the absence of metaphor and depth, which again, not something that you'd even necessarily do or think to do much in those times, but that's just kind of where it falls on the grand scheme of all albums that I've listened to. Instrumentation and production, though, I'm given higher marks. I feel more comfortable with that because the fiddling was phenomenal. The steel guitar when it came in was great, and I know he just plays the rhythm guitar mostly, but it's always very plucky and on beat. It all feels in sync. So, instrumentation production, I'm given a 79. And that's in spite of it being recorded in the 1940s and 50s, you know? Yeah. I feel like it's earned a 79, even with recording quality kind of hampering that a lot. And overall vibe, I've always said that overall vibe has been a category where I take into account historical significance. And I think vibe might still be just a little too low, but, and we're talking about a greatest hits album. So, there's really not a coherent vibe to these songs, you know what I mean? These aren't songs that were put together for a reason other than they're really good songs. So I'm giving Vibe an 80. According to the Squirrels in our math department, they're calculating my final score to be at 77.3. 77.3. Again, not as high as I would like it to be on the surface. You know what I mean? That feels too low for a man with the musical genius of Hank Williams. Yeah,
1: not as low as I was afraid it was going to be when you started talking about how you were happy with how low it is.
0: No, I know, but it just feels too low in my heart. (laughs) Yeah. How'd you wind up with this one?
1: Well... You summed up a lot of my thoughts. I really enjoy the music, but it's just not an album I would want to put on and listen to necessarily. I'm a, i'm a singles greatest hits guy, but that's not what this podcast is. And so my score needs to reflect the album. And so I'm giving this one seven out of 10. Okay. Because uh, I mean, I've ranked other things like Dark Side of the Moon at a seven. Never mind. Yeah, at a if seven. Dark
0: Side of the Moon got a seven, I'm okay with this being a seven because your scale is a mystery to me.
1: Yeah. And <laughs> as for my units, oh, yes. I'm giving this one seven honorable mentions out of 10 which feels
0: fitting it does yeah this feels like it just deserves an honorable mention as a whole right this one gets a seven with an asterisk because i mean holy heck listen to it yeah yeah as music goes i don't know if it gets much better but as albums go it is just a collection of singles with that hope y'all enjoyed hearing us talk Another week about another album. Of sorts. That's right. We wound up, let's see, 77.3 and a 7. We did match this week to some degree. Uh,
1: you're closer to an 8. Yeah,
0: but I'm still in the 7 range, so we won't do greatest hits albums often. But with an artist as great as Hank Williams, who has as few albums as Hank Williams in such a prolific singles catalog, it just felt like that was the thing to do, you know? But if you are interested in seeing us just
1: rate some random singles, you know, popular songs that are memorable to you. Maybe one of these episodes will we'll listen to some singles.
0: That's right. We have actually, we have a form on the website under the Get Connected tab at spinitpod.com and there you can suggest singles for us. Let's see, this is episode 12. We're going to be doing a singles episode for our 15th episode as kind of a special you know, we made it to 15 and we want to mix it up to try something different once in a while. So that episode, we'll be tackling some of your recommended singles and maybe some singles that are at the top of the pop charts right now just trying something different fill out the
1: form leave suggestions in the comments on youtube if that's where you're watching add us on social media just get us those recommendations and we'll pick some
0: that's right you don't have very much time to do that so recommend quick because there's only a few weeks between now and then that's why i wanted to throw it out you can recommend things on our website, spinitpod.com, under the Get Connected tab. Or you could tweet us recommendations. You could comment on our Instagram posts with recommendations. We're at spinitpod on Twitter and at spinitpod official on Instagram. So look for us everywhere that you are social in the media. We'll be there. Anyway, thanks for listening, y'all. Eating some delicious
1: jambalaya.
0: Jambalaya on the bayou. We're pulling our pirogues away now, and we're gonna tell you to have a great week and, uh, and it's keep it's spinning. It. We will see you next week. I feel like that's it. I feel like it just ended. I feel like a-